I've been waiting to get to this chapter for a long time. Chapter 7 is the, is the transition to the book. Chapter 6 is where we are today, this week and next week. Because I, the, the implications of what, what, what happened in chapter 6 are so, so valuable to us today. And they speak volumes to us. So um, bear with me. I'm going to go as fast as I can. If you haven't been here or if you're like me, you've forgotten because the last time we were in Nehemiah was two months ago. Uh, here's the short Reader's Digest version. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. Um, he uh, was in the middle of all of that. Uh, uh, one of his brothers came in and said, he asked about Jerusalem. He said, things aren't doing, doing well at all. Nehemiah was burdened. He presented to the king to be able to go and go back and help his people. And the king said, yes. And then he pushed it a little farther and he said, will you give me diplomatic immunity that I can go wherever I want to go and there won't be any problems? And he said, yes. And then he said, hey, by the way, one more thing. He said, when I get there, it's going to be expensive and these people are poor. Uh, will you give me your credit card? And the king said, sure. And then I said, you know, so Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And um, we talked about all of the things that he has, he has come up against and how it was a massive project. I mean, closest analogy we have, you're talking about a stone wall 8 to 12 feet wide, 20 to 40 feet tall from here to Climbing Hill. Okay, almost two and a half miles. This is a massive undertaking. These people are able to accomplish it in 52 days. Just average, ordinary, common people. And of course, anytime God wants to do something, uh, God's enemies get really upset about it, and they try to stop it. And we've talked about how that happened over and over and over again. We talked about these guys, uh, Samballot and Tobiah and Geshem, and all these guys who kept getting their fingers in it, trying to stop this thing, and and getting them to be scared, and telling them they were going to attack them and kill them, and all of this stuff that happened. And we talked about over and over again, Nehemiah just turned to the Lord, kept on doing what he was going to do. And this morning, what you're going to see is, <clears throat> as the project gets close to getting finished, the attack no longer comes from the outside. The attack now comes from within. And what you're going to find is that's what Satan does in our lives as well. This applies to ministry as well as our personal lives. And when God starts to do something, or God wants to do something great in your life, what you're going to find is you're going to find that Satan often will then kind of come in the back door and try to attack you from the inside. And we're going to look at, at what the attacks were. We're going to look at two this week and two next week. And we're going to talk about how they apply to our lives and how Nehemiah was able to, to get through them and come out victorious on them so that they didn't hinder what God wanted to do with his life. So with that in mind, Nehemiah chapter 6, here's what it says. <clears throat> the first attack says, Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of the enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall. There were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. And we're, we're almost done. It's kind of like us. You know, we got everything done, but we don't have the doors hung yet. That's coming later this month. So, you know, the doors aren't hung. Everything else is all, all done. That Sambalat, the Geshem, said to me, Come. Now he's talking to ne Nehemiah. He says, Come, let us meet together in the villages in the plain of Ono. But Nehemiah knew this. He said, but they thought to do me harm. So they said, Nehemiah, let's go talk. Notice what he says going on. Uh, the next passage, he goes on and he says this. So I sent messengers to him saying, I'm doing a great work so they cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave and go down to you? But they sent this message four times. And I answered them in the same manner. Now, <clears throat> this doesn't seem like it's a big deal, but this is a big deal. Because you see, I want you to put yourself in Nehemiah's position, okay? And I want you to think about, okay, you're Nehemiah and you've got an enemy out there and the enemy now comes to you who's been attacking you, attacking you, attacking you and saying, hey, look, you know what? Look, 
can we just talk this out? You know, I, we, I, I want some unity here. I want some peace here. I want this thing to be resolved. Can we just talk? Will you just stop your work? Just, just come on. Just meet with us for a little bit, would you, Nehemiah? Now, that sounds subtle, doesn't it? I mean, if you're a God-fearing person, don't you want to work it out? If you're a person who loves God, I mean, isn't that the right thing to do? And Nehemiah says, no. Now, that seems odd to us. But you see, what these guys were trying to do is they were trying to get Nehemiah's focus off of what God had him do to get him to focus on something else. And Satan does that a lot in our lives as well. And one of the things that happens here is, and and it's not like they ask him once. They ask him again. And again. And again. And I love how Nehemiah handles it. Every time Nehemiah answers them the exact same way. Nope. In essence, you know what he's saying? I don't have time for your meetings. Now, 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 just stop and think about this for a minute. These are guys who want, they, they want to work out the problem. Shouldn't you stop and take time to do that? I mean, isn't unity something that's important? Isn't resolving conflict a big, important thing? Isn't this a, a, a thing that you ought to do? And what does Nehemiah say? No, I don't have time for that. You see, <clears throat> Nehemiah had discerned that their intentions were different. And their intentions were not unity, and their intentions were not that. And Nehemiah understood their intentions were to hurt me. And so Nehemiah, as a godly man, said, you know what, I'm sorry, I don't have time for your stuff. And that seems kind of cold. But they tried over and over and over and over again. In fact, you're going to see, they don't just do this four times, they actually do it five times. And Nehemiah, at the same time, gives him the same answer. He doesn't owe him any explanation. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. He just goes, you know what? Can't do it. I'm working on the wall. Talk to me some other time. Notice what happens next. Next, verse 5. Then Samballot sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. Now, the tactics change. See, before, he was sending a letter that was sealed. And what would happen is you would... You would take a scroll or parchment, and you'd roll it up, and you'd put a, a thing of wax on it, and you'd usually your, the, uh, uh, you would use your signet or your ring or whatever, and you'd stamp your seal in it. And then when a person got it, if the seal was broken, they knew somebody had read the letter. Okay? You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you get a piece of mail tomorrow uh, from the post office and the letter's open, you kind of wonder who read your letter, right? Well, they don't, they don't, yeah. Huh? Does that happen a lot? Never happens? No. Teresa, never happens? Yeah. You call Teresa, and you say, why'd you read my mail? No, um, ah. That's what you do. It's sealed. So when they send it open, they know somebody's going to read it, don't they? They're going to travel all that way to deliver a letter and not read it. And they knew that. And notice what it said. And it was written. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says, that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are building the wall that you may be their king. Now he starts to slander him. Now he starts to make up stuff. And he says, hey, look, we know you're just in this because you want to be the king of Jerusalem. That's the only reason you're building those walls. And we know it, and everybody's talking about it, Nehemiah. That's why you need to come and talk to us. Because, Nehemiah, we need to solve this. This is what everybody out there is saying about you. Come, Nehemiah, meet us in Ono so we can work all of this out. And they send it as an open letter. 
in order to slander and to put the innuendo and to put all that in the people's minds. Notice what Nehemiah does going on. He says that they may proclaim to you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king of Judah. Now these matters will report to the king, so come, let us therefore consult together. Hey, we're going to tell the king what you're doing. Notice how he responds, because I love this. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. 2018, you're a liar. <clears throat> For they were all saying this to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hand. So he goes to him and he says, you know what? You're making the stuff up. You're lying. God, help us to keep doing what we're supposed to be doing. Now, Nehemiah could have gone into some big, long explanation because the bottom line is this. To be king of Jerusalem would have been a demotion when you were the king's cupbearer. We had already been through it in chapter 5. Nehemiah, a great personal sacrifice of his own finances, was footing the bill for a lot of this stuff. This wasn't about Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't bring up any of that. Nehemiah doesn't defend himself. Nehemiah doesn't go bend over backwards to try to explain why they're wrong and he's right. Nehemiah just says, you're a liar. God help us to keep focused on what we're supposed to do. Okay? So... He tries two things in this, in this passage. One thing is he, he tries this idea of, of slander. And the, sec, the first thing that he tries to do is to shift their priorities. And here's what you're going to find in your Christian life. You're going to find that one of the, the two of the tactics that Satan's going to use on you today, this week, and this year is this. He's going to get you to, to focus, to not focus on what your priorities are. He's going to try to get you off task. The second thing he's going to do is there is going to be people saying stuff about you and slander and saying things that aren't true. And if you're not careful, you will make the mistake of focusing on that instead of on what God wants you to do. So I want to talk about three things really quickly that will help us as we head into this week. Three things that I think are, are great lessons from this, this, just these two issues. The first one is priorities. I think... The greatest tool that Satan has in our culture today is Satan keeps us so busy that we are focusing on what is urgent in our life so that we neglect that which is important. And I think it's one of the great tools of Satan right now. Is that what happens is, if I were to have a discussion in here with you about what's important in your life, you could list off what the most important things in your life are. But if I would then turn around and ask for your calendar your calendar would not reflect what you just told me. Because you see, we have been so caught up in the system of this world of running from urgent things to urgent thing to urgent thing. We have done what Jesus condemned the Pharisees of doing. We have made the minor things major and the major things minor. And I watch this in people's lives. I watch this in ministries. I watch, I watch ministries who, all of a sudden, things that were major, things that were important, all of a sudden they push aside and say, well, you know, we just want to get along with everybody. And so I watch them take doctrine and stuff like that and just push it off to the side and say, that's not important. We just want to get along. We just want to be one big happy family. Yeah, but wait a minute. What about doctrine? Oh, that's not important anymore. I watch families do it all the time. I watch families go, you know what? Yeah, you know, these are important things on it, but, you know, we're just so involved over here. We don't have time for that anymore. And I watch it over and over and over again. This is what Jesus, when Jesus was here, one of the things that happens is 
is one of the one of the deals that he looks at the Pharisees is his, in a story. He says, "You guys tied the mint and the aniseed," and he said, "You do well." Now let me explain that to you. That that meant that uh, in the in the New Testament time and the Old Testament time, there's this concept of tithing, of giving at least ten percent to the Lord. Okay, <clears throat> these people were so obsessed with the idea of giving ten percent that <clears throat> when they here, here's here's the analogy. Uh, anybody buy any spices in the last couple of weeks? If I buy salt or pepper or sugar or anything like that, okay. How many of you, when you bought your five pounds of sugar, portioned off a 10% of it and brought it up here and put it in the pantry at church? You know, that's, that's insane, okay? How many of you, when you got your little thing of pepper, poured out 10% of it and brought it up to church? You go, that's crazy, you know? That's what they were doing. They were so dedicated to giving stuff to God that they were at that level of giving. And Jesus said, you do well, I'm glad. I'm glad that you're that serious about giving. But you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. Love, mercy, justice. The things that are really, really, really big and huge, you're not doing at all. But these little things like pepper and salt and sugar, you're, you're making sure you get all of that right. And Jesus said, look, you're missing the big picture. You've got it all out of whack. And that was his beef with the Pharisees. It was like, you guys have got, your priorities are so messed up right now, guys. And I watch ministries do that. I watch ministries major on minors and minor on majors. And I watch people do that with their lives. And it's so easy to do. And if you're not careful, that's exactly what Satan will do in your life. And I want to challenge you to really take a good, hard look at what's important. What's important to you this week? You know? And then adjust your calendar to fit what's important. Most of you will run this week by doing what's urgent. And when something comes up, you'll drop it and go. And Satan can do that to you. He will keep you busy all week long. And you will never get to what's important. That's what he tried to do with Nehemiah here. Nehemiah said, can't do that. Because you see, here's the key, and and this is the key to this thing. In order to say no, you have to know what you're saying yes to. See? In order to say no to something, I have to know what I'm saying yes to. If you don't know what you're saying yes to, then you're always telling people, oh, okay, yeah, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that, I'll do that. You can't say no. And some of you are stuck there. You can't say no to anybody. You know why you can't say no? Because you don't know what you're saying yes to. So, for instance, for me, when, I, when my wife and I, um, you know, we set aside a time. And we said, you know, for us, our time together used to be Friday nights. And, and people in the church knew. <clears throat> if you were dying in the emergency room, you could call me on a Friday night and I would call. But that's the only thing I'd come to. Well, you know, I'm having surgery late on Friday. You're on your own. Why? Because I'm saying yes to my wife. Because for too many times in the ministry, I said yes to everybody else and no to her. And I came to a point that I said, in my life, she is the yes. Everybody else is the no. So it's like, well, didn't you feel guilty? No. Because I knew what I was saying yes to. Does that make sense? And that's where some of you are stuck right now, is you don't know what you're saying yes to. 
And I want to challenge you to really sit down and ask. Nehemiah could easily look at these guys when they say, oh, let's work out the unity. Let's work out the No, no, no. Because I have said yes to God building the wall. I am building the wall. I'm not going to say yes to you because then I have to say no to that. And that is so important in your priorities. And I just want to challenge you because you want to know why some of you struggle with, with having time for God? Because Satan keeps you too busy. You know it's important. But what do you end up doing every day? What's urgent? You know spending time with your spouse is important, but what do you do every day? What's urgent? You know you ought to be spending time with your kids. What do you do every day? You know, oh, I'm there. I'm, I'm sitting in the stands cheering them on. I don't know that you want to get me started. I'm all for supporting your kids. But let's always remember this. What's important is that the parent is the primary influencer of the child. Not the school, not the coach, not the job, not the career, not the church, the parent. And what's important is for you to be a parent to that child because that's what they need. That's important. But what do we do? We run to everything that's urgent. And I just want to challenge you because this is a big deal. And this is how Satan trips us up all the time. Second thing is this. Nehemiah was discerning. Nehemiah was able to discern that they had ill intentions. And one of the things that's lacking in our culture today is this idea of discernment. Um, Let me give you a legal, biblical kind of definition that that you won't care about, but I I just need to do it anyway. Um, Here's what it says. Here's here's an idea of uh, discernment. Discernment is the ability to judge matters according to God's view of them and not according to their outward appearance. Let me make it so that I can understand it. (coughs) And some of you are going to have a hard time with some of this, but you just hear me all out. Discernment is the ability to see evil in good and good in evil. Okay, let me say it again. Discernment is the ability to see good and evil and evil and good. Let me give you a Bible example of both of those. Jesus was able to see the evil in Judas. When the disciples saw him as good. In fact, I would argue that the disciples saw him as the best disciple. Because when the disciples had to choose somebody to take care of the money, everyone chose Judas, including Matthew, who was a money guy. If you know anything about money guys, money guys don't trust a lot of people. So for a money guy to trust Judas tells me he was good and he was smooth. And when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, every one of the disciples looks around and goes, me, 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 me. It wasn't like 11 guys went, oh yeah, we know it's Judas. But Jesus was able to see and discern the evil in the good that everybody else saw in Judas. By the flip token, Jesus was able to see the good in the, or Jesus was able to see the good in the evil um, of, yeah, evil, I'm sorry, I got it backward. Okay. Oh, I'll be glad when I'm over this cold. Um, yeah, I took a whole bunch of cough medicine this morning, so it's all fuzzy. Uh, so in, in Judas, he saw the evil when everybody else saw the good. Okay? And the woman at the well, he saw the good in the evil. 
See, the woman at the well in that story, you know, or not the woman caught in adultery, I'm sorry, Jesus is out, you know, writing on the sand, and they come to him, and they bring this woman caught in adultery, and they say, hey, hey, you know, you know we should stone her, we should stone her. What do you think, Jesus? We want your stamp of approval here. And you can read the story carefully. It says she was caught in the act of adultery. It means they caught two people, but there's only one standing there. And because of that culture, women and their position of the women, they, they were trying to get Jesus to make a statement to side with them about this is the way women should be treated, and Jesus doesn't. Jesus is able to see the good because they thought, you know what, because of what she did, she should die. And you know what the law is, so let's, let's kill her. What do you think, Jesus? And wisely, he just says, who, he who was without sin cast the first stone. And they all went away from the oldest to the youngest. And then Jesus has this discussion with her. And Jesus said, where are your accusers? He said, I don't accuse you either, but he said, go and sin no more. In other words, go change your life, follow me. Don't do that anymore, but let's get things right and follow me. Why? Because Jesus saw the good when everybody else could just see the evil. That was the discerning part of it. And some of you have been taught, and some of you have been brought up, just like me. You were brought up in a world which said, you, you can't find any good in evil. And some of you were taught, and this is the illustration. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to get you, make you think here for a minute. Some of you are taught, well, you know what? Well, you know, if it's evil, it's evil, and if it's good, it's good, and, and you shouldn't mix good with evil, and, 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 and here's the illustration you've heard. You know, if you had a great big good steak and it was thrown in the trash can, would you eat that steak out of the trash can? <clears throat> you know what I say? No. I mean, really, I wouldn't. You know why? i got a freezer full of steaks. So I'll just go make another one. But if my wedding ring went in the trash can, you better believe I'd sort through that trash can to get my wedding ring out. Why? Because that's something of great value to me. It's not determined by the trash cans, it's determined by the value. When they bring this woman to Jesus, all they can see is she's trash, throw her away, get rid of her, kill her. But Jesus sees the value in a redeemed life. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I know that God can continue to use you. There's no reason to take your life over this. I can use you in a great way. And so God, in his, Jesus, in his discernment, sees value where nobody else does. And there's that fine line. And let me talk to kids for a second. Kids, unfortunately, biology has been very cruel to you. Those of you who are 16 on till about 25, 26, I know that you think you know it all. I get that. I did too when I was your age. What you'll find is the older you get, the dumber you get. Because the more you realize you don't, how much you don't really know. But the reality of it is this. We know biologically, I think that's how you say it. We know that biology-wise, there's a part of your brain that's still developing and is going to develop until your 20s. It's a part of your brain that, deter that links together short-term consequences and long-term consequences. And it puts you at somewhat of a disadvantage. Because your brain can't calculate, if I do this now, this is the long-term consequence. If I do this now, if I make this decision now, here's how it'll affect me 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. Your brain, your brain hasn't made all those connections yet. So it's very important for you to learn some discernment. And it's very important for you to gather around you some people that can help you navigate those issues as you come up with them in your life. So I always encourage people in that age group, you get a couple of adults around you that when you have to make a major life decision on college or marriage or career or military or something like that, that you have a council of people that you can go to and say, hey, look, what do you think about this? Pray about this for me. I'm trying to decide here. What do you think? 
Because many of them will have, godly people will have that wisdom that they can pass on to you, and then you can start to develop that wisdom within yourself so that as you get down the line to make those decisions, you find yourself in a habit then and a pattern of learning discernment. You learn discernment by being knowledgeable of the Word of God. You learn discernment by being absorbing the Word of God and Christian principles in your life. You learn it as, through Christian maturity. And there is, I, I'm going to tell you, kids, if there's anything that I would say invest in learning and, and to make it long-term down the line without a lot of bumps and bruises, I cannot stress the importance of discernment. I cannot stress the importance of having people help you make good choices. You go, well, you know, you don't understand my environment. You know what? I'm going to tell you right now, there are a whole bunch of people sitting in this room right now that would love to be in your corner helping you as you go forward. And they would be more than willing to sit down with you. I did it with my kids. I did it as an adult. My wife and I did it. When we had junior hires, we found a couple that was raising teenagers, and we learned from them. And then when we had teenagers, we found people that had college kids, and we learned from them. And then we had people that were getting married, and then people, now we're learning the grandparent thing. Okay, that's a whole other world, you know, that's a whole other world, that's a tough one, you know, because you, it's really easy to go, oh, I'm a grandparent, I can get away with that, and forget, wait a minute, my goal as a grandparent is to help my kids, to come alongside my kids, to raise godly kids, not to be the fun grandparent, I can still be the fun grandparent, I am the fun grandparent, but that doesn't mean she gets to do whatever she wants either. Okay? So, you know, and believe me, when she throws a wall-eyed fit in front of Grandpa and Grandpa doesn't do anything, she doesn't know what to do. Like, well, Grandpa always does what I want. No, not on this case, you know. And we literally, we have times we've picked her up and put her in another room and said, when you're done, you can come back and join the rest of us. And you're like, really? You don't just, like, sit her and coddle her? No. No, that's not going to help her. You know, might help me feel better, but it's not going to help her. My goal is to help her. Discernment. The last thing is this, is slander. Look, people are going to say what people are going to say. And when people start attacking you, trust me, I've been in this business long enough to have been attacked. I've been in this long enough, you go, what? People would say mean things about a pastor? Well, you ain't been around very long. Yes, they do. Okay? They don't, you know, I, I've been around long enough to, be, to, to, to have this happen. You mean people make stuff up? You bet. Because here's what I've learned. Hurt people hurt people. Okay? When somebody's hurt and in pain, they tend to lash out at whoever's closest, and sometimes that's the pastor who's been the closest involved in the situation. It just comes with the territory. You know, and my prayer from God, for God all the time is, God, give me the... Give me a tender heart, but the height of an elephant, you know, um, and try not to let stuff stick and bounce off as much as they can. And you go, well, I just can't believe anybody would do that. Well, you know what? It's it, just part of it, you know. Talk to my kids. They've been around long enough to see it. And that just, that just comes with the, the territory of, uh, that, of being in ministry or being in any kind of leadership. Give me any leader who's been in leadership in any length of time, they've taken shots, okay? It just comes with the turf. And it's easy sometimes to get very defensive. And it's easy to want to fight. Um, be careful. You know, I, 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 I got to go here because we're here as a culture. 
the media is so stupid. Okay, let, let me give you an example. And I'm not, I'm not siding anywhere on politics on here. But, but the media is always like, did you hear what the president did on Twitter? Did you hear? Time out. I'm not on this Twitter account. I don't know what he said on Twitter. I don't care what he said on Twitter. The only reason I know what he said on Twitter is because you're telling me what he said on Twitter. If you would shut up, we wouldn't care or know. Why? Because they keep making an issue of it. It's the same thing with slander. When you, when you give it credence, it develops this thing on your own. And it takes on this life of itself. And that's what happened. He sends an open letter so they can read it, so they can make inferences, so they can start gossiping. Be really careful with prayer requests. Be really careful with prayer requests. Let me give you an example. Where's Lael? Lael Juanita. I want to pick on Lael Juanita. <clears throat> um, so Lael Juanita. So I come to you and I say, hey, look, <clears throat> I'd like you to pray for Juanita right now. Lael and Juanita right now, they're struggling. Pretty easy prayer, isn't it? You just pray for You don't know what the deal is. You don't know if they're struggling with finances. You don't know if they're struggling with marriage. You don't know if they're struggling with kids. You don't know if they're struggling with car issues or health issues. You don't know what it is. You just pray for them, right? On the other hand, I come to you and say, look, I want you to really pray for Lael and Juanita because Lael was telling me that he really doesn't know if he loves her anymore. (laughs) Now what do you think? You see the difference? You see how I can completely torpedo somebody in something as simple as a prayer request? That may have been true, something that Leo shared with me, but that's not something I share with anybody else. I can go to you and say, hey, pray for Leo and Juanita, but I don't need to share the rest of that. Now, by the way, that's not true, okay? <laughs> it is on tape and we'll go out over the internet, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Juanita's mom's going to come to me now, next service. And, and I'll, you see what I'm saying, though? You've got to be really careful here. I have a rule. I have a couple of guidelines for me as a leader that I've ha- adopted over the years. Here's one of them. Um, I don't share anonymous stuff. So if somebody writes me an anonymous letter, I might read it. Nine times out of ten, it's going to go in the trash before I read it. And here's why. If you're not willing to put your name to it, I'm not willing to give it attention. It's a biblical principle, by the way. When people came to Paul and said, hey, Paul, there's a problem at the church, and Paul would write letters to the church, you know, Paul said, hey, I hear from Chloe and so-and-so, this is what's going on. If you're not willing to put your name to it, then don't share it. If you're not willing for somebody to know that this is where it came from, don't share it. You know, when you hear people go, you know, this is, the, this is the problem I have in the media thing where they go, well, an anonymous source told us. You can be making that up for all I know. That's what these guys did, by the way. They said, hey, it is reported among everybody among you that this is what everybody's talking about, Nehemiah. You need to fix this. You need to solve this. You need to get this taken care of, Nehemiah. Everybody's saying this, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah went, you know what, look. It's a lie. It's not true. God, give us strength to finish the wall. He didn't go into all the reasons. He didn't go into... And some of you get so bent out of shape about what people are saying about you. And it gets you so bamboozled off and sidetracked because you're so worried about it. 
I, I read a quote by Benjamin Franklin. Remember the Poor Richard's Almanac everybody used to read from time to time? This is an awesome quote. Listen to what he said. Since I cannot govern my own tongue, though within my own teeth, how can I hope to govern the tongues of others? He said, I can't even control what I say most of the time. Why do I think I can control what everybody else is going to say about me? And here's what you're going to learn. People are going to say what people are going to say. And people are going to believe what people want to believe. And what I would challenge you to do is to stop focusing on it and stop letting it sidetrack. You go, well, you don't know. They're saying this about me and they think this. Time out. You know what? Live for an audience of one. What does God think? What's your heart before him? Move on. Move forward. Keep going. God, give me strength to keep doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, yeah, but you don't know. You know, everybody's believing them. Here's what I've also learned. People who are like that don't have a lot of people that are really listening to them. They just think there's a lot of people who are listening to them. Because the reality of it is you and I know. You know who's the kind of person that's sharing gossip about everybody and anybody and people who don't. And we want this to be a place where when something is shared about somebody, we believe the best and not the worst. And we cut people lots of slack. Why? Because we know how hard it is to control our own tongue. And I want to challenge you because, you know, first of all, don't be a spreader of this stuff. You know, and when people, you know, and I have people come to me, you know, and they go, they go, you know, well, you know, you know, I want you to know about this. You know, I heard this from, I said, where'd you hear it from? Well, I can't tell you. Then you know what? It's not that important. Then You have so-and-so come to me. Well, I'll tell you, it's from so-and-so. Okay, great. I'm going to go to so-and-so and ask them. Oh, no, no, I don't want you to do that. Why? Why? Because I know that for every story, there's two sides. You know, you know, you should know. A couple comes in, wants marriage counseling. I'm all for it. I'm going to sit down with the husband. I'm going to say, tell me your story. Awesome. Great. Sit down with the wife, say, tell me your story. Awesome. Great. I'm going to sit him down in the room and say, this is what he said, and this is what she said. Oh, don't do that. Well, are we going to be truthful and solve problems, or are we just going to sidestep stuff? You know, we've we got to be real about some of this stuff. And you need to understand, Satan this week, Satan this year, is going to do this in your life. He's going to try to get your, focuses wrong, your focus wrong, mess up your priorities. He's going to do whatever he can to use people to slander you and hurt you and say stuff about you. And you are going to have to learn how to be discerning. And it's the key to navigating some of this stuff. And to take the Lord in prayer and you know when to say something, when not to say something. And Nehemiah deals with it publicly. He says, you guys are lying. Let's go on. Let's move on. Let's go build the wall, guys. And that's it. And there could be nothing, by the way, further from the truth than that Nehemiah wanted to be king. Because for Nehemiah to be king was a step down from being the cupbearer. He was taking a huge demotion to do that. And the only reason he did it was because he loved, he was governor of the area. The only reason he did it is because he loved the people of Jerusalem. And he wanted to see a city safe and all these enemies on the outside not being able to have influence. So I close with this. Nehemiah reminds us that Satan works to hinder our life and ministry. He often tries to change our focus. 
He gets others to question our motives. It is only through focus, discernment, and a strong dependence on God that we can defeat him in our lives this week. So let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, it's so easy to get caught up in this stuff. Lord, this world is moving so fast. It's easy for us, Lord, to just try to focus on getting through a day and not appreciating and enjoying it and seeing the opportunities for ministry in front of us. So, Lord, help us so that we don't make that mistake. Help us to keep our focus and priorities clear. And that we have people with needs in front of us this week. Lord, may you use us to meet those needs. Lord, for some, may you help them to learn and to cultivate this issue of discernment. They may be able to see, Lord, in, in bad situations, things that are good, and in good situations, Lord, things that, that are bad that can trip them up. And Lord, for each of us, as people try to hinder our message, as people say things and do things and try to get under our skin, Lord, may we be tenderhearted in our response, but Lord, may we be thick-skinned where, Lord, every little thing doesn't just set us off. And when it is all said and done, Lord, as people look at our lives, may they see Jesus Christ in us. And Lord, may they come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And uh, thank you, Lord, for using us. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um, We're going to stand together.